welcome once again into the Soccer OG. That's me, Max Bretos. This is episode 22. I hope you're enjoying the Gold Cup. It's been a wee bit tedious, but then again, you don't have to watch it. That's why you have me. I can watch it for you and tell you what's happening. And that's why I once again ask you, as I do at the beginning of every program, to please download, take a listen, share the, the video if you can, and leave a nice review. It makes a big difference, and I know, because the numbers are growing, it's very exciting. Big plans ahead, some road trips, and some big guests for sure. We're just taking the temperature right now. See how, how much of a soccer appetite everyone has. I really enjoy doing the show. Wouldn't miss it. <laughs> After all, I am the soccer OG. We're going to get started later in the business, and I'll be joined by Nigel Rio Coker. Great English footballer, black English footballer. We're going to talk about that after what happened at the end of the penalty shootout between England and Italy and gauge the temperature on England and Great Britain. Do they have a racism problem? How bad is it? We'll indulge all of that and hear it from him and the challenges he's had to go through. Also going to give you my thoughts on the Gold Cup. We'll kind of balance it in into a segment which is slash stoppage time, but before the business end. But you'll enjoy it because... It's a party. Let's get the show started. All right, we're back. Where can we begin? Still not a dull minute. It's interesting with the Euros in bed, Copa America. We're looking at the Gold Cup. I get a little weirded out because once you, once the games, like I just watch the games. Like all of you, we're watching the games one after the other. It's on at my house nonstop. I'll watch re-airs. I'll watch games twice. And we still have our gigs that we have to do. Got my LAFC. That's my job. So my voice is a little hoarse. Incredible goal by Carlos Vela. Check it out. LAFC beat Real Salt Lake 2-1. That place was buzzing. I just want to say, and if any of the LAFC folks are listening, you gave this old horse a real jolt by allowing me to be the broadcaster for that club. I want to be that, play that role for as long as you'll have me. And... I never take it for granted when I walk in there and I see the 3252 getting ready. And it's these electrical LA nights. And if you're coming to LA, there's so many things you could do. But try and put one of these LAFC games into your plans. You won't regret it. It's just unbelievable. So uh, that's good. Getting back in the rhythm. Calling some Combate Global. MMA. I love it. Uh, Copa Libertadores. I'll be off to Miami again for the second leg between Atletico Mineiro. And Boca Juniors. So but the thing I love about those Miami trips is um, uh, a little cafecito, a little Cuban coffee. And so I don't want to take any pharmaceuticals. I don't know if I said this before. So I don't take any Ambien. I used to, but I just want to sleep on the plane. But I still need a little kick in the pants to go to bed on a plane because I have a red eye. So what, I, what I've been doing on the flight back, I'll read 20 pages of a book. Eyes get tired. And then I'll go to the Versailles in the Miami airport and they have... All the pastries there, including the papa rellena, which is a, a masterful piece of Cuban cuisine. It is some ground beef wrapped in mashed potatoes and then deep fried. So you got that nice meat center like an M&M has a peanut. And it's a good, it's the size of a, a tennis ball many times. And you eat that, lights out, baby. Lights out, like UFO saying, lights out, lights out in London. It's a fun week. You know what? I will have a little stoppage time, and in stoppage time, I'll talk about the Gold Cup. Let me get a couple things. Uh, uh, so I read this article. Saudi Arabia looking to host the World Cup in 2030, and obviously they want to have an angle because we just had it in, we were just going to have it in uh, the Middle East and Qatar in uh, 2022, next year. So what's, what's, what's the angle? They're going to do a joint bid with Italy. Saudi Arabia and Italy, not really next to each other. Very different places. <laughs> Oy. I, go, I, I would knock it out of hand, but knowing FIFA, this is a legit, and they love, they love money, right? Who has more money? The Saudis. Fantastic. Anyway, it could happen. <laughs> Just have it with Iran. <laughs> Let's do it. A goodwill in the Middle East. Have it. Have an Israeli. Who not? Just Italy. All right, I also have a little heat this week with uh, American soccer, tw soccer Twitter. I'm with you guys. I love you guys. I follow everyone, and I know everyone follows me, and I appreciate that. There's a, a nice common courtesy, but we're getting way too predictable, way too predictable. 
So we all have this, we rip through a tweet or something. If something good comes up, we, and I said about it last week. So this week, Jason Sudeikis has, is photographed the Ted Lasso premiere, and he has a shirt saying to Jaden Bukayo and Marcus, maybe not in that order, a tribute to the three players that went through hell in the English shootout. And we're going to talk about that with uh, Nigel Rio Cochran. You know, Nigel's a really serious guy, and I, because I, I'm over, I, I'm always quite humorous, but I get along with him great, even though he's kind of more serious. And I've befriended him. He's a good dude, uh, but he's really shed some light on the situation that it is in England. And I go, I go, I mean, is it really a vocal minority? It feels like a vocal minority. I go, the racism problem can't be that bad. Is it got like maybe like five percent of the population are bad apples? He said, no, it's it's closer to sixty percent, seventy percent. I was like, what? Different levels. And I don't want to put it out of hand because I don't know, but I want to know. And you know, some, some is racism, some is nasty racism, some is just ignorance, and some is another level, um, just not being coherent about anything, not listening, kind of going about your life and saying, okay, I, no, I love, I love all my fellow men and women, but you don't really engage and you've got to. So we'll talk to Nigel about that and many other topics. Uh, getting back to Ted Lasso. So American Soccer Twitter, this is a new rule. If you see someone tweet something and you see it 20 times on your timeline, sit that one out. Wait for the next one. So Jason Sudeikis, uh, I like Ted Lasso like everyone else. I'm not bananas about it, but I do enjoy that it's an easy watch. I'm going to watch it again in season two. I have one criticism, which is a pretty big one. I'm going to watch the season, and then if, if it's still there, then I'm going to bring it back. But until then, I won't. So we'll, we'll talk about it later. So I'm going to watch Ted Lasso like everyone else. And Jason Sudeikis is great in that. And it's a good idea. I was so It was such a pleasant surprise. So anyway, he has the shirt. I go to my Twitter timeline, and everyone's tweeting that photo of the shirt. I go, great. It was literally, I saw his face over and over and over and over again. And people were just saying strange things. Like, you know, they knew him. And one, guy, one, one tweet read... We, we're so fortunate to have Jason Sudeikis. We don't deserve him. I'm like, what? He's a good dude. It's a good show, but what's going on? I just, I see it and it gets so heavy. I'm like, everyone just take a breath. I mean, I'm guilty of it too. I pile on tweets. Some great goal. I'll, for example, the Gabriel Jesus kick in the Copa America. I tweeted it after I saw a hundred other people tweet it. But what have we got to do it? To hook each other up because we're driving people bananas. Anyway, We'll get to the business end. Coming up afterwards, I'll talk about the Gold Cup. This is the Soccer OG. Thanks for jumping on. We always make sure it's a good show, and we love to have you for the ride. Business end next. We're back here on the Soccer OG, and it's time for the business end. And joining me, a gentleman who I've been able to fortify a, a friendship over the last few months. I hope I can say as much, Nigel. You're a top-notch dude and uh, been able to call some of the Copa Libertadores games down in Miami with you. And some everything's been coming up, so I figured it'd be a great time to have you. So thanks for jumping on. You just took too long to invite me on, but it's okay. I won't take it personally. He's all angry. <laughs> I won't take it personal at all. Even I wanted to each other for a while now, and you could have invited me a long time ago, but now you choose to invite me. It's okay. It's not personal. Well, Nigel, I I wanted to build an, an audience so that when you did come on, there'd be more ears to hear the gospel <laughs> according to Nigel Rio Coker. So that's oh, why. <laughs> but uh, I, I we have a bunch of links. I wanted to talk. I mean, we, I talked to you right before we were doing. Uh, River played Atletico Mineiro, and then obviously the Euros just wrapped up and the situation with uh, Jaden Sancho, Bukayo Saka, and Marcus Rasford. But we'll get to that in a minute because I know you have, even as I asked you, are you comfortable talking about that? You said, I'm a black man. I grew up in England. Of course, I'm comfortable talking about it. Yeah, pretty much so. It's, it's not nothing new and it's not something that surprised me. And I think a lot that's happened, even though we're not getting into it yet, but a lot that's happened with all the movement in football is not nothing that's new to us. You know, it's something that we, especially my generation and older, we've always had to live in and grow throughout. And we've never had the opportunity to be so freely to speak about it. And then for certain things to hit the media frontline for people to, the ones who are intelligent enough and accepting enough to actually believe it does exist, to truly see that these situations do occur a lot. And I know there's a lot of work to be done and we'll talk about it, but the fact that you can speak about it freely and I hope more people are listening is 
it's an important development and I, hopefully it leads to the next big thing. And I, it's, a, it's obviously a massive, massive job, but uh, we have to take a closer look at it, but we'll, we, I want to talk to you about you a little bit. And uh, I first heard, I would, I'd be cheering for you, Nigel. I'm a West Ham supporter. And <laughs> what did you be playing for like 150 games for those guys? But you, you're, you don't, do you have any allegiance with West Ham? Cause you, you burst my bubble literally figuratively <laughs> when I said that you're like, yeah, yeah, they're, they're all right. No, I think uh, West Ham is great. It's a unique club. I think for me, growing up in England, it's kind of, we grew up in a real sense of a sense of community, what football clubs mean to the community and the people. And when you, go, when you join West Ham, I don't think you realise how big a club it is until you actually play for them. And then the fans are very passionate about their club. They're not shy fans. You know, they let players know whether they think you're playing well or whether they think you're playing bad. And it's something about accepting where they let you know that, they're hardworking people and they pay their money and all they want, the minimum they want is effort. It doesn't matter if you're a good or a bad player, whatever it is, but as long as you give that effort, running through brick walls, die, like literally die for the cause week in, week out, and every game you put on that shirt, that's what matters to them. You know, no, obviously no club wants to lose, but as long as they see the players putting that effort, they're fine with that. And that's what the fans of West Ham let you know. And during uh, my period there, obviously, we had the two playoff finals. We got promoted in the second one. Then we had a fantastic first season of Premier League, FA Cup final, and then surviving relegation the following season. It's a club that really takes you through a roller coaster of emotions. And that's what people don't. I mean, to compare it to American teams, for listeners, obviously, of the American audience, playing for West Ham is like playing for... Pittsburgh Steelers or the Green Bay Packers. You know, that's the best comparison that I have for West Ham at the moment. Where the fans are very hands-on. I like that. Very you drop hands-on, very, very committed to the club. And it's the club is really the heartbeat of the community. I didn't know you're such a big NFL fan. Who's your are you gotta be a Dolphins fan? You're down there in Miami. Yes, let's go <laughs> Dolphins. Of course I'm a Dolphins fan. I've got to be a Dolphins <laughs> fan. I'm have you been to a game? Have, have you been to an, uh, an NFL game? Yes, I have. I've been to an NFL game. Funny enough, I went to an NFL game in London as well when they started their whole expansion of trying games in London in the Wembley Stadium. Was that uh, the, with the World League of American Football? That was the NFL. No, the NFL no, teams. NFL. Like the when NFL the uh, like the Jaguars, the, some of the other teams would go up there. The first game they had over in London in Wembley. I think it was Jacksonville Jaguars versus maybe New Orleans. I believe. That sounds about right. And but the Jaguars are always there, so they, they're they're talking about maybe having a team there. They they obviously want a team there, and the Jaguars are the team. And uh, the owner was uh, uh, Farid Khan, who owns Fulham, so it kind of makes sense. So it could be the London Jaguars. Would that be a success? I I, I, I do you think there's enough interest? I'm going completely off a tangent here, Nigel. But since you brought it up, do you think NFL in in England would be a success? I think it will be a success because I think English fans will go as well. But then you've got to remember that the heartbeat of Europe, especially for the NFL, works well with London. It's one of the busiest airports in Europe. And a lot of the expat Americans fly from all over Europe into London. And it's sure. easy to fly to London from most countries around the world. And it's easy for them to attend an NFL game if it's not possible for them to go to America. So even though if they might be a a New Orleans fan or a Patriots fan or a LA Rams fan, they can still go and see and be part of the atmosphere of having an NFL game in London. They will travel there and make it work. A lot of fans in Germany of the football, so I'm sure they'd make it too. So it'd be a team yeah. for Europe. It'll be a team for Europe, but it'll just I think a lot of people just like the experience. That's the thing. For the ones who can't get to America, to still experience the kind of American fandom and stuff like that, it's a great way for the league to grow. The uh, big, and now another big pivot, because I, I know after you went to West Ham, you went to Aston Villa. You got it. And I, I figured this is a great time for me to ask the question because you've worn both jerseys. And I don't know if anyone's brought it up. And I should know the answer to this. But who had the claret and blue first? And, wh- and how did that happen where you have these teams with uh, a. a, a- <laughs> A claret shirt and blue sleeves. I remember I never even followed soccer, football, and I'd watch it. What's with these jerseys? I love them now, but it was so odd because they had the two different colors. And then you have two, you have three teams 
with the same kind of jerseys. How Burnley as well, right? So how did that happen? Yeah, I have no idea how that happened. <laughs> but for me, I must just say, throughout my career, I've been very fortunate for all the clubs that I've played for have had the same kind of foundations of people's clubs, I say. Because if you really get into detail about it, you look at certain clubs, yes, clubs always built off that foundation. Then depending on the owner and whoever comes in, they have maybe a different direction when football is a business. And I think we're starting to see a lot more of the business element of football. And most clubs go so far deep into that whole business side of things, that, that um, corporate side of things, that they lose a bit of their identity and lose a bit of belonging to the fans and the community. So I came through Wimbledon. You know, a lot of people who don't know, if you Google the crazy gang. and Were you part of that era too? Because you were like part where that, they were kind of. Yeah, I was coming through as a youngster through that crazy gang period. And some of the stories of what they used to do as initiation, or they'll call it hazing. Nowadays, is probably inappropriate in this day and age. But back (laughs) in the day, some of the stuff that we saw and heard, it was crazy. And then... um, that's a club that really belongs to the people as well for a small fan base, but passionate. Then West Ham, obviously we've discussed then Aston Villa is the same, you know, Aston Villa is a, a club in obviously the second city. And again, the fan base and interacting with the fans, they're very passionate about their club. You know, they're a very, very big team. They're one of the few English clubs who have won the European cup. So historically they're well known. And also they're the team that's supported by Prince William. Oh, yes. By the way, uh, Wimbledon, I mean, it's an interesting story. And that's when I first started working with uh, in the sport and we covered the Premier League and they were in the Premier League and then they became AFC Wimbledon and it kind of financial issues. But that was like the first English team. And really, when I look at the 20 some years, 25 years, I've watched it. That's like the one team that I remember the name of all the players. It was and you said it's the crazy game. But you remember it was obviously Vinnie Jones. I was like Laurie Sanchez. Is Dennis Wise was on that? Dennis Wise, yep. And then Robbie Earl. Get, Robbie Earl Robbie works Earl. here now. Yep. And I used to clean Robbie Earl's boots. So I always still talk to Robbie Earl. He's a fantastic guy. And I was his boot boy. What was he? Where's my where's my boots, Nigel? That's <laughs> no, a bad impression. Talking, Come on, it, Nigel. It got I think I think with Wimbledon, though, what, what I liked about Wimbledon as a club, one of the few clubs in London, it was very multicultural. And obviously, yeah, as well, there were one club that was renowned for producing and bringing a lot of black players through, especially back in, in those days, because still British football had a bit of a dark reputation back then. It was still the dark ages, but Wimbledon was one of the clubs that actually was going into the underprivileged areas, so to speak, and producing a lot of black players. And their motto was we produce, we train, and then we sell them, which was a fantastic sustainable system to do because they had, they didn't have a big fan base. You know, so when people used to speak about how, oh, you know, you dream to play in front of 30, 40,000, women that we were coming through, we might have had four or 5,000 in a 20,000 stadium seat, but we didn't care because the fans were just that passionate. So you learn a lot of hardship, a lot of character, a lot of development. And also through the youth system, it's very multicultural. You know, at a young age, we had players from Finland, from Northern Ireland, from the Republic of Ireland from all over the place. It was a very multicultural youth team system that we had. And I think for me, looking back on my career, and I say this all the time, I wouldn't change anything coming through Wimbledon. You know, and you play with kids who come through Arsenal and all these other big clubs and established clubs. I think coming through Wimbledon for me is one of the greatest blessings I had because of what I learned from that club. Man, and I, I do remember that because it was, it was these teams were predominantly white. Obviously, when you look at the 80s and the 90s, you'd see that, and then you'd see this transition. And then Wimbledon yeah. came around, and you'd see a diverse 11, and they, they really were shoulder to shoulder, and they didn't make a big deal about it. They go, it almost like, hey, this is not a big deal. This is our team. That's my teammate, and we're in this together. And there was like that seamless thing that I think other clubs must have seen and said, it's incredible when you bring this up because that should Yeah, I mean, people, that, if you think about it really and truly, come on, you think about some of the other big teams, you know, like um, Arsenal had Ian Wright, Craig Rocastle and a few others. Most teams had one or two black players, but Wimbledon was renowned for producing a, a, a phenomenal amount of black players. You know, Carl Lieber, Marcus Gell, Robbie L, Carl Court. There were so many... Carl Court, yes. ...that came through. Wimbledon and Wimbledon was renowned for it. So they actually embraced developing black players because there was still a stereotype that black players were generally only athletic 
and not great footballers and not intelligent. But Wimbledon still had that way of building the character and getting you guys to understand it. And it really was a fantastic club. You know, the way that everyone got along from the kit men, the groundsmen, the, the, the staff in the training ground and stuff, it really was a family atmosphere at that football club. You know, it wasn't corporate or big. It was big in the size, in the sense of character and heart. But it was a fantastic football club. We got to make the let's make this let's make the series for Netflix about Wimbledon. You could be the executive producer. Let's make some money on this. It's a great story. All right, I'll tell you if, if people understood about Wimbledon and what it was to come through that club, they would love it. I'm telling you that the way that that club was built and what it was about, and you got to think they were in the Premier League. There were clubs or so-called bigger clubs. Well, there were bigger clubs with bigger fan bases that were playing in the Championship. Wimbledon only had about five thousand fans sharing a ground with Crystal Palace, Sellers Park. You know, and it was just amazing for what they did coming through the leagues and staying there. And obviously the famous FA Cup win also and the history behind that club and just developing players and the way that way they went about developing players and what they believed in. And it's got a title already. We call it the Crazy Gang, right? It's it. That's right. What was what was Vinnie Jones like? Is he was he like the persona that we see? I mean, he was obviously a very physical player. I wouldn't say I don't know. I would never call him dirty because I don't want to get in trouble with Vinnie Jones. But that's a word that's been bounced around. But Vinnie Jones, no, Vinnie Jones is just a unique character. You know what you saw of him is what you got. He was passionate. He gives a hundred and he gives everything about himself. He's someone that wore his heart on the sleeves. But you look at football from their generation, what he did wasn't anything that most other players weren't doing. It's called the dark arts of football. You know, and back in those times, certain things were deemed legal, you know, and he just made it work for him. I saw him at the, uh, at the it was at the Sky Bar. We'd, I'd get in there, I had a friend who was the doorman and we would, uh, he'd let us in. And it was just like a very, this was like late 90s. So it was very hard to get into. And we'd get in there and drinks for like 20 bucks. We'd get one drink between us and just look around and chat up people. And there's always celebrities. And Vinnie Jones was there. And he, uh, I think he was just starting to develop a Hollywood persona. But in the United States, no one knew who he was. So I said, I'm going to go say hi to him because he's probably going to be, hey, yeah, nice to be recognized. So I go, unfortunately, it happened in the bathroom. He's coming out, I'm going to the bathroom. Vinnie Jones, just want to say hello. He goes, oh, not right now, man. I don't, no, 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 me having a beer. I'm like, oh, I just want to, I just wanted to say hello. I was so terrified. <laughs> he just went wham. Bloodshot <laughs> eyes. Not right now, man. Oh, come on. Give me a break. <laughs> My impressions are getting better, Nigel, by the way. Can you see that? Very good. I was impressed with that one. <laughs> so how did you, you're, you're in England. How did you, uh, the transition to come to Major League Soccer, right? you started it with, the Vancouver Whitecaps, but how did that conversation start? And when did you know that you would be heading to these, heading to these parts? And you're still here in North America. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's a different, difficult story. I think that what's happened in my time was, obviously, I became very good friends with a lot of the national team players, you know, Stuart Holding, Brad Guzan, who's like a, a brother to me. You know, I spoke to him, asked him, he gave me some advice. Brad is? Brad Guzan, yeah. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. So um, we're very close, uh, both families and his family and my family. Um, yeah, so I got some advice from him. And at the time, I would say that for me, that was just before that, a year or two, I would say that's when the transition started to happen, when at first it was great to be a Bosman, a free transfer. But then clubs basically started to change their mentality where a lot of the belief was, oh, if a player is over 30, don't give them any contracts or if they're coming to 30. So clubs started to really do a lot more pushing in the whole, how would I say, the machine element, where it was more about production, 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 and selling on, selling on, than actually keeping players that were still physical, capable, and good enough. So at that time, you know, I thought things would go different, but everything I, just, I believe happens for a reason. And then there was interest in MLS. And for me at the time, I always felt that this was one of the one leagues that can grow and develop to become one of the best competitive leagues in the world. And uh, I just took up the challenge. You know, I just think that that was the path that was meant for me. And I came over and it was a new experience. And I'm someone that embraces life a lot. So I'm willing to try new challenges and new things. And uh, ended up in the MLS, obviously, played at Vancouver, uh, Montreal. And, you know, I had the great experience of playing in the CONCACAF Champions League final with them against Club America, playing at Azteca. So it was, it was all a learning period for me to see what could happen next or what I choose to do after football. But it's priceless 
education in the footballing sense, you know, from just embracing the coaching side of things and how things are done over there, how football is viewed in Europe and just seeing the big differences in how football is viewed and covered around the world. You didn't mention Chivas USA. Did you forget you had a oh, few games? Yeah. It's a difficult one, though, because Chivas is a bit of a sore one when you went there and certain things were told and it never materialized. And then obviously they end up becoming LAFC. So, yeah. Well, in, in some indirectly way. But uh, how would you mention you've seen the growth in the league? How, where, how are we doing? Because you know, I'm part of them. How do you see the league coming? Where does it need to get to? Has it, we, have we hit some roadblocks? or? I think it still has potential. I think the, the, the difficult thing is it's, it's because of a lot of – European, well, the European players that have come here, they've had a bit of criticism to it. And I think that what the league has to understand, in my personal opinion, is you have to be accepting to criticism because mm -hmm. America is a melting pot. And there is a lot of people here who have first or second generation Italians, Greeks, or wherever it is. So they grew up with football being their number one sport. And at the moment, America, so MLS is still not the number one sport. You're still going to compete against basketball, and, you know, football and all that. I personally feel that clubs, in my experience, clubs need to do a greater deal amount to make the community feel part of it and not just make it feel like it's another franchise or another, like, NFL, NBA or NHL team where they can just uproot whenever they want. So you need to make these clubs really feel part of the community and feel part for the youngsters in those areas to feel that there's a pathway for them to make it by playing for their local club. And that's the difference because you look at any football from around the world and how it works in different clubs and cities, the clubs are the heartbeat of the community. Young kids grow up wanting to play for their local team and the clubs make them feel part of that. And I feel that's something that's kind of still missing from the MLS side of things. It is, yeah. I just feel that, yeah, I just feel that for me that a lot more attention needs to be put in the footballing product and the concentration of teaching and educating about the game. You know, you're not going to get crazy high-scoring games like you get in basketball and NFL. And I know that's what a lot of the American fans want. But if you watch the game and learn about the, the skill level and controlling the game and a one a one nil game can still be an amazing game if you're willing to study and be a student so i think that a lot more education needs to be done into that but a lot more attention and detail needs to be put into improving the quality of the game whether it's the coaches and stuff like that as well and it's difficult max because you and i know and obviously from being in it and then coming out of it as well i feel what also is a bit of a difficult thing is it's the system of um transferring players you, you, you've watched European football. You've known some players that have stayed at clubs their entire career who become folk legends and local heroes. It's difficult with the American system as well of how they do it because you get such a quick turnaround with players. It's hard for fans to kind of get any kind of relationship or an identity with a group of players they can see, okay, they're going to be at this club for the next five, six, seven or eight years, you know, because different managers come in, they want different style of players. So there's a, a possibility that players will be traded, transferred, and all these type of things play a part. So you want to create an identity with certain players who can establish themselves within the community and they'll be in there for the long run. See, that one is a little trickier one to uh, to maybe manage. But the other parts, I think we're, some clubs are doing that and it's a, you'll, you will kind of have that passage from like an academy to the senior team. And I, I think they've seen the, the, the error of their ways and how they get kids from when they're eight, nine years old and they streamline it to the top and they keep it local. And look, when the kids are, when kids are saying, you know, in LA where I live and they're eight years old, they say, I want to play for the Lakers. When they say, I want to play for LAFC or the galaxy, you know, that's a breakthrough moment. I think we're getting closer, but we're not there. And what was the second one? To, uh, the second point you made was about the, it was obviously the tenure. I don't know. I mean, that's, they're going to try, but that's always going to be a little bit tricky uh, with regards to getting those guys to, I would like to see, I, I, I would like to see the local pipeline and some of the teams you know, Dallas and, and Salt Lake have their youth players come through here and they, the teams are built on those guys basically because they can't spend so much money in the marketplace. So they do it, but they keep finding talent. Dallas is a mess. They're like the worst team or second worst. 
the, the, the white caps are the worst right now. The Dallas is second worst, maybe. And uh, they're just pumping out players. They just sold another player to uh, Venezia. So uh, there's some things working, but you've got to keep them there. So it's, they're not streamlined across the board, but uh, it's... See, that's, and, and that's what I'm trying to say, though. You, you think about it, it. It's so... I feel that it's so business-driven over here, and that's what's the detriment. And it's not a club so much. It's a franchise it's a kind of... so much. It's a franchise. And you look at European clubs, yes, some are run poorly, this and that, but you look at Lionel Messi. Lionel Messi is always going to be remembered for Lionel Messi at Barcelona. No matter where he goes next, it's Lionel Messi, Barcelona. He's not going to go anywhere. He signed that five-year deal. That guy's never going to leave. He should have left. Yeah. And then that's what I'm saying, but you look at Ronaldo as well. Ronaldo will always be remembered for his time at Real Madrid, Manchester United, maybe a little bit of Juventus, but he'll always be remembered for Real Madrid and Manchester United. So it's creating, I think, for some players, having that real identity and connection with clubs, which is a very difficult thing to do in the MLS because of the system. There's a constant turnaround. So if I'm a fan and I go to watch Inter Miami and I kind of have some kind of connection with a player there that I like his character or something... Next season, I'm going to support in the club and looking to see him. He gets traded. It's like, okay, what do you do? Because the, the turnaround isn't as much as it is over here in England, in Europe. You know, I think there's a greater detail and attention put to the player and the quality of the player and keeping the player there regardless. You know, so it's building a sense of community and togetherness with the player and establishing a real foundation that people can really relate to and understand. Yeah, it's also becoming a selling league, which is going to make it difficult because that's just what it's, it's, it's the teams are enjoying making money. It looks like Gianluca Busio, the sporting Kansas City guy, they're going to get 11 million for a transfer. So they can't say no. Hopefully one day they, they're in a situation where they can and keep those guys. Cause I almost think they're as important, like a local homegrown player who does well is probably just a notch or two below than bringing in a superstar player. Obviously, Lionel but Messi. I, I, and that's the thing, though, Max. I think, yes, okay, you can sell players, but at what point do you stop to really build your league? Because at the end of the day... Yeah, they got it. That's coming. But we'll see if they, they honor to it. To go over there, then it, it doesn't make no sense. You know, why would other players want to come here if the so-called best players are being sold somewhere else? So when players do want to come here, the reality of it is they're coming here for a jolly up. That's the reality. <laughs> it, it no one wants a jolly up. But, well, they'll come here for a jolly up, trust me, because... Sometimes when it comes to identifying players and the right type of players and the ones to put actually in front of the public eye who are actually going to do the right things and also say the right things, I think the league has made a big mistake with that because we've seen a lot of players and what they've said about the league and certain things. So that's the difficult thing you're going to have. Are you actually going to be a league that really wants to grow or you're just going to want to be a league that, you know, wants to continue to just sell players and make money? You know, look at... Dortmund right now, one of the yeah. biggest stars I talk about is Haaland. Dortmund has stood their ground and said no. And they could easily get 90 million to 100 million for him, but they've said no. They're going to keep him for another year. And again, Haaland will be thought about his first earning his career being at Dortmund. I'm sure he'll probably move in the end, but this is the difference of clubs where they could be in a position to financially sell, but they don't have to. And they didn't they, even they, win the league. Well, Dortmund's in that situation because they did sell a bunch of players. They were selling players, and maybe now they're wising up because they could be the best team in Germany, but not they keep selling players. No, but then if you think about it, they finish second in the league. They do well. They're very competitive. They're still in the Champions League. They could sell him for probably, let's say, $100 million if they wanted to, if they were desperate for it, but they don't have to. And a lot of the players, and what people don't give credit for with Dortmund is they're recruiting very well. They went to England and took Bellingham from Championship Club Birmingham that is crazy. You know, that's never happened before, right? But again, that's the point. Because they're paying attention to detail. They've got the right kind of scouting network. They've got the right thing going on, and that's it. And I think that if some MLS clubs actually cut away from the hoo-ha, the fandom, and all the irrelevant things and put football first and get a right scouting network, they'll be able to do things properly and be successful like some European clubs if they put football first. Very interesting. And I, I, that's maybe that's another documentary, how Dortmund got Bellingham and Sancho, went to England and poached him. And these English clubs have got to be sick. They go, how did that happen? That, they got the best two young oh, players. It's because that, it's because England is, has got, is, a, is a hotbed for a lot of talent. There's a lot of young talent in England. It sure is. And right now, because of how competitive the Premier League is, they don't have an opportunity to play. So it's about scouting network. I mean, you and I covered the Libertadores. We've seen the abundance of talent coming through in Brazil right now. You know, you look at Santos with Kaiki and some of the players there. Kyle right George, now. all those, yeah, uh, one after the other. All of them. Fantastic talent. You know, so the talent is out there, but it's just 
whether the networks or the scouting networks are good enough. And then there's a lot that comes with it, like I say, with the MLS, where, you know, there's budgets and there's draft picks and stuff. There's a lot of stuff. Salary cap. Yeah, exactly. Any thoughts on moving back to England? You look pretty cozy in Miami these days, huh? You got your cigar, you got your cigar bar. I'm a, I'm a dual citizen, so I can go back whenever I want. I still stay connected to my friends and stuff in England. And, you know, I keep an eye on what's going on. You know, one of my good friends has just taken over at Colchester. I'm going to wish him good luck this year. Hayden Mullins, fantastic. Player. Oh, yeah, fantastic. Now he's the manager at Colchester United. So Another hammer. Yeah, exactly. So, um, yeah, I'm still connected. You know, I try and stay focused on world football. So, you know, I try and make sure I'm very knowledgeable on what's going around the world and, Never forget my experiences of different countries I've played and understanding the mentality and how they consume football. Yeah, and I'm sure you can do that when you're with your sandals on and your shorts uh, under your umbrella in your backyard. In uh, yeah, and getting, getting bit by mosquitoes also. <laughs> yeah, That's true. That's true. I, I have uh, so many English friends that come back. The only one who went back was was Beckham. Everyone's like, "Well, I'm staying here. It's good." But we 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 love it. The more, the merrier, and uh, it's great for the sport as well here in this uh, in the country. But we're happy you're here, Nigel, because I get to work with you. And I really enjoy that. We did. Hey, um, we did this a uh, uh, quick, uh, quick little pivot again. But the this VAR. So we did Boca Juniors at Lechico Mineiro, and there was a play where the Boca player was kind of grazed, barely touched it. We saw the we saw the play in real time four or five times. We're like, not a penalty, not a penalty. Then the VAR freezes it where the guy's hand is on his back, and it looks like he's pushing him, and they yeah. reversed it. So, I mean, we were we were upset. I go, man, they just created a penalty with the video because there's no way you could do it. So to me, and I'll get you, this was obviously in, in South America where they're just trying to 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 uh, put it into the Libertadores. It was for the first it was the first game they used it this season. Yeah. And then obviously you saw it. Euros was pretty good. Premier League has its issues with the offside and a couple other things and like accidental hostilities where they hit somebody by accident. But it's viewed as a. As they punch and you get a red card, then it's it's just getting exhausting. I just wish they could just simplify it, not rely on the. I mean, this sounds weird, too, but just don't rely on the technology too much. I always come back to rely on the refs, the humanity of it, because I think we're I getting think, to that um, point. Yeah, I think to, to add to what you're saying, it's 100%. It's something that I said about VAR as well. I think that when VAR was first introduced, I think a lot of responsibilities was taken away from referees. And that's why we had a lot of these problems because of what the referees were told. They were told this is how it's going to work and stuff. So referees stopped basically refereeing. You know, they gave a lot more emphasis to the technology side and what they were told. And I think that it's silly because referees, just like professional football players, go through a lot of training, a lot of basically going through the process to become professional referees. So they've trained for this let them do it, you know, let them have that human, that bit of human element. And if certain things are needed to be intervened through the technology side, it can work. But I think a lot of times you've got to use a bit of common sense. And I'll probably say the best way to describe VAR for me at the moment is whatever teething needed to be done was done early in the season. And I think the mistakes that they saw happening from different leagues I think they corrected it to the perfect use of VAR that we saw in the European Championships. Yeah, I think that's the best that we've seen VAR for me in the European Championships with the refereeing decisions. The one debatable moment I'll probably have to say what people talk about is probably the Raheem Sterling penalty against Denmark, where for me it could be not given and seen as a bit of too much of a soft penalty to give away. But I think other than that, with everything that was implemented and how the referees refereed the game, and you can see that referees took a lot more emphasis on controlling the game and actually refing the game than relying too much on VAR. And then when VAR was needed for the offsides and the bad goal decisions, it was used correctly. And I think that's the best way to use VAR. What a big difference it is. You're right. And um, I was okay with the Sterling penalty. People got really caught up into it. And sure, it wasn't, stone cold but i was like eh, okay i can live with no, it. it it wasn't preposterous there was, there, no there wasn't nothing wrong with what Raheem did. he did what you know most people most players are told to do so for sure so you're always going to have 50 percent of people who say yes it's a stone cold penalty and 50 percent of people who say no it's not a penalty but i just felt that overall if you look back now the european championship the whole tournament var 
was used the best that we've seen it so far since it's been introduced. You know, there wasn't no long delays, no long pauses, no nothing. Yeah, I hate that. I think that's how VAR needs to be used, just like that. It's a, and I, there was also where they really policed the theatrics, the dark arts, perhaps, but uh, they didn't blow the whistle on some what would be viewed as simulation. And and I like that, too. But at some points I'm like, blow your whistle. I think in the final we saw that I'm like blow the whistle. It's you yeah. know, it's like not all of these things are feints or uh, trickery. Some of them are, are, are enough of a foul. It is a contact sport and you go. But the percept the Italians were going bananas and then Raheem Sterling was kind of doing it as well and no one was getting the call but then I was like all right at some point you've got to I thought that he could lose he lost control of the Dutch referee Kuipers and you got you got to button it down so there's still some adjustments to be made yeah there's still some definite adjustments to be made but I think after everything that we've seen from watching Premier League the different leagues and tournaments I think the best it has been implemented implemented so far and used well is this European Championship if they can sustain it like that with a still a little bit more fine-tuning, I think it'll be fine. European championships were amazing. Uh, Seven million viewers in the United States for the final. Three million in Canada, which I thought is the entire population in Canada, quite frankly. I know, I'm just kidding. But that's a lot. That's like uh, 30% of it. But uh, it's um, huge numbers. It was a dream final. If you had a World Cup final like that, World Cup and FIFA would do backflips. It, it just showed that this tournament is moving closer to the World Cup than the other regional tournaments like watching the gold cup. Now I'm a little embarrassed because it's empty stadiums, poor play. And we're not keeping up with the Joneses, but that to me, I mean, I've watched every Euro since not, well, I saw bits and pieces of 92 and 96, not its entirety, but in 2000, I was one where I watched the whole thing. 96 to a lesser degree, I kind of in there, but this was to me, the best, the best of the bunch. The groups are obviously a little tricky because there's so many teams, but there's so many marketable nations now in Europe. It's, England and Italy and France and Belgium and the Netherlands and Germany. And then you have the next tier, which is good. It's uh, even like this, the middle pack is good. It's always going to be a good competition. It's probably going to get, there's a potential it gets better than the world cup at some point because of the quality at the top. Yeah. I think that's, that, that's the thing with Europe. Um, it's always going to be competitive and it always will be competitive. And I think that, People don't, I think, with, for me, for most so the American audience, I think a lot of them who don't really follow football don't realise how competitive it is in Europe with these clubs. And yes, we're looking at the Mbappes and all these ones now, but people have to realise the next generation and the ones that are coming through are already coming through. It's non-stop. That's how competitive it is. So you're always going to see young superstars coming through from all these different nations because it's just that competitive. So it's not they're going to have a period when they stop. You know, you look at France still. France's squad is still so good where you can't write them off for the next World Cup because they've still got so much young talent coming through there. You know, Portugal's another one. So it's just very competitive, which Portugal, I think yeah. is only benefiting everyone that's a real football fan. You know, there's so many nations. It's not the days of when we grew up where literally football was dominated by basically Brazil. You know, Brazil was the one super, superstar team where everyone wanted to see you know, now you can look at Portugal You can, and, and you look at Italy. You know, Italy is the new Italy now. It's a modern Italy. You know, it's changed from the traditional style that's believed of the Italian football to becoming a lot more outgoing and, and attacking and, and playing good football. You know, you look, I think a lot of that has been um, implemented by what people have seen in the Italian league from Atlanta, if you ask me for my personal opinion. Atlanta is the one team in Italy that's gone against the Italian grain of being over-tactical, but very defensively structured to being free-playing, attacking, high-press, goals, goals, goals. And the national team, and I think Mancini has taken that on board because a lot of the younger generation Italian players coming through want to play that style. Happy to do the high-press, happy to, you know, break on the counter and, and not be happy just to sit and be defensively structured. That's a seismic shift for the Italians to do that. Uh, and yeah. it's Atalanta, uh, it's uh, Swallows doing that as well. So it's pretty... It's pretty cool how the league's kind of, it's gone to the national team and they've just adjusted and look, they're getting the silverware. And yeah. uh, we'll pivot now to this because I wanted to talk to you about the situation in the penalty final and Jaden Sancho was Mar Marcus Rashford, Bukayo Saka missing their penalties and the onslaught of you, 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 when it happened, everyone's buckled. I go, it's going to, you know, it's going to pop its head. How bad will it get? It got really bad. 
I a couple of guys in the English circle circuit um, did tweet about him, and I'm sure there's a lot, but these are ones I just kind of thought because I thought this too. And I know I asked you about it, and you said it's it's much worse than you would think. But Gary Lineker basically saying it's a minority of people, it's a loud one, it's embarrassing. And kind of focusing on that small minority of people that make it so bad and make these racist comments and do these gestures. Joey Barton would say in a tweet, embarrassing all today to the new focuses on racism, a minority allowed to set the public agenda and then said, focus on the team. And his intentions are obviously good. And I was like kind of thinking the same thing. I go, we can't react this way uh, because there's some a small minority of folks that are loud and do this. But if it's mo- not a small minority of folks, then the problem becomes much bigger. How how small or large is that problem in England? It's, it's well, for me, listen, my personal opinion is it's not a small minority. Okay. Because that's what the problem is. For black players, we've always heard that our entire career, oh, it's a small minority. It's not a small minority. The problem with England and everything that goes on there as well is it's like what John Barnes said. He did an interview not too long ago on, I think, LBC or something. And he said it so well. It's a society problem. You know, England has that problem. And it's not a small group or small minority. This is what a lot of football fans think and everything along those lines. It's been like that. You know, the only reason why things are happening now is because of the fact of um, Raheem Sterling, I think, has probably been the bravest player where at the height of his career, you know, being on top, he came out and said and pointed certain things that happened in the English press. We've seen that and been there in our entire career and seen it. You know, I've been in there when certain words are used. I've seen it in the coaching system coming through as black players. Whenever it's a black player that they don't want to deal with or a young player, he has an attitude problem. That's what's said. The whole coaching systems in all these clubs in England are white men who don't really interact with black men and black players. They don't understand certain things. My personal thing was when I was coming through, I remember I was very serious players with my white counterparts would say to me, oh, why are you so serious for? Because I had to deal with things as a black man when it comes to family dynamics, dealing with police, dealing with racism and discrimination where they don't have to. But their feeling is, because you're a football player, oh, you know, you don't have to deal with that. No, that's not the reality. Whether it don't matter what black athlete you are, there's certain things you'll have to deal with in society because you are black. That's just the reality. So when they say it's a small group, small minority, we've heard that all before. You know, these people are people in the police force. They're lawyers, they're accountants, they're people in the fire department. They're people in all different professional levels who are saying these things. And I think one of the guys who said it works for one of the big realty companies in England called Savills. And he was one of the main guys who got done for his abuse of Jordan Sancho. And like I said, I think that for me, when I look back in my career, we don't hold anything about back against the older generations, the likes of Robbie Ells and stuff like that, because they knew what they were going through. They knew what we would go through, but they didn't have the platform to speak out because if they speak out, they can't provide for their family because generally the whole football was run and dominated by white men who don't really socialize with black men. And I'm sure they could tell you stories of what they had to live through and go through. So, we knew what they went through, but Raheem Sterling for us was the turning point when he pointed out stuff in the media and, you know, getting into that media field now, I've seen certain things and certain terminologies that's always used with black players, but not used with white players. And it got to the point when there was a report done by, I think, a Norwegian or a Dutch group where they researched games and commentary and they saw and told about the stereotypes of wow. certain words were always used negatively to the darker skinned players then the lightest-skinned players got less negative words, and then the white players never got no negative words. And that's an actual official research of what They went through all the videos. They went through all the videos, and then it's no surprise. So all of these things are no surprise. you know. And this is a system where people just don't want to understand it. And that's the reality of it is people just don't want to believe it. They don't care. Because the fact of you're getting racially abused for missing a penalty or for doing stuff wrong, and if you look at what's happened, the trend is it's only when black players make a mistake or something happens. But when white players make a mistake, they don't get racially abused. So it's not just a small minority. It's something that goes on and has been going on for such a long time. But it's... Uh, it, Max, 
it's great. I just did that. But listen, just bear in mind, I've got 3% on my phone. So my phone might die. Any <laughs> so, I would, I wanted to follow up, but look, I appreciate that, but that was such a great answer, but I will say this, man. Uh, I'd love to get your thoughts about where we go from here, but it seems to me, the one thing that can really help this is to get people in the positions of power, uh, general managers, clubs that make the decisions, coaches, and that could really help move it because the perception will change. And then if it's not okay, changed, they I, could go to people and say, no, no, you can't say that. You're no, and then, and that's through. the thing. I think you're right there because I've always said this. Football should reflect what football is. Football is one of the one sports around the world where so many players of different races, cultures, backgrounds, and religions play. Reflect that on the management side, the doctors, the physiotherapists. And when they, when people start to see different colors of people that are managers, that are coaches, that are referees, they start to see it. It's going to be hard to be that way when you can see there's different colors and black players are capable to be managers, are capable to be doctors, are capable to be physiotherapists. They're capable to do all the other things. <laughs> I lost it. Oh, I lost now. That's look, if I, he might pop up here again, but if it's not, I think I wish I asked those questions a little bit earlier to see what we could have obviously addressed and move forward with how we fix this. And there's a lot of things. And I think the passive racism compared to the upfront racism, it, it, you kind of can put it in a similar bag. And if you're, if you go, oh, I have a black mate and this, and I support them, but you don't, you still talk a certain way or you don't really mind your teaser, you don't have those conversations, then it, uh, it's all for naught. But I'm going to thank Nigel Rio Coker because I'm going, we went way too long in. I always do these things for 30 minutes and they take forever. This is the Soccer OG. Nigel, I'll see you on Tuesday and uh, we'll be right back. Time now for stoppage time here. And I wanted to say this earlier, but I should have said it in the opening. But I wanted to say a few words about my good friend who we lost this past week. Paul Mariner worked at ESPN. He was an English soccer legend. The most agreeable man um, that you could have ever met. Just a, you know, they always have this expression in Spanish. And I always remember it because it goes like, Siempre dice que no hay muerto malo ni niño feo. It's just a, an expression that I always remembered. It means there's, there's no such thing as a bad dead person or a ugly child. There's no such thing. All kids are cute and everyone who died is, is great. But, and, and obviously that's not the case. But Paul Mariner was truly the most incredible soul. Uh, just a story I wanted to share about him. And this, is a, this, guy's a, this guy's a badass. I mean, he went... All the British museum musicians know him. Iron Maiden, Judas Priest, they all love Paul, Paul Mariner. He was their favorite player. I had like, he'd show, he had like Bruce Dickinson and Steve Harris in his in his phone book. And he's like, hey, he goes, you want tickets? Paul would go, you want to go to the Maiden show? I go, I can't go because, and he goes, oh, I'm going. And, I, and, and it was a show I couldn't go. Um, it was in Massachusetts. We were going to see Maiden with Paul Mariner. And uh, that's kind of the gist of my, what I wanted to say is, so I was at ESPN and Slayer, the band Slayer, was going to perform coming to Central Connecticut. That's big news. No one comes to Connecticut. No one comes to Hartford. I know musicians are, are going, okay, we're going to New York and then uh, let's just drive through Connecticut. We'll go to a show in Boston. Sometimes they'll stop, but barely. So Slayer was in. I was all excited. I was doing a show with Alexi Laz. Hey, Slayer's in town. You're in town too. Want to go? He goes, I can't make it. I asked and I texted like 20 people all over uh, the campus at ESPN. Ah, oh, no, I can't make it. Out. I just lost hope. Uh, Paul Mariner walks by. I go, Paul, would you be interested in going to the Slayer show? He goes, I'm in. I was like, what? I said, yeah. He goes, yeah, I'm in. He goes, where are I? So needless to say, a couple of days go by and I lose some steam and I don't go to the show. I make an excuse. And it just hit me about how nice he said he was going to go with me. And it's just one of the big regrets I carry that I didn't go to that show, especially now. Man, it's uh, so many good people going. I know it's 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 an unfair, uh, you know, uh, with uh, Pedro Gomez and uh, just the best people I've worked with are dying. It's just it makes you think a lot. Um, 
He also, I mean, I was also during the World Cup of 2014, I didn't make the, the TV roster, which was crap. So that was really difficult for me to swallow. It's a bill, bitter pill to swallow. He, he kind of sensed it and he invited me to a game up at Foxborough. It was Portugal and so on. It was like a pre-World Cup game. And I sat there and we had a good laugh. And it was just, we drove up together and it was just fantastic. So I'm going to miss, I, 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 kind of, I didn't stay in touch with him recently. And again, another huge regret. But just everything you hear about that guy is the real McCoy. He's such a wonderful person. I'm not going to take too much time here about the Gold Cup. You can hear my analysis after the USA-Canada game up on the Soccer OG on my personal YouTube channel, Max Bretos. Go there. The latest video will give you all the breakdown. Uh, the Gold Cup has been, it's been terrible. It's been such a hard watch. It's, the quarterfinals are going to get better because the problem is you have such a big difference between the have and the have not. So you have Mexico, USA, Costa Rica, Honduras, Jamaica, Canada, and you have a you have a drop off after that. Maybe Panama, and then it's like huge down. And some of these other countries are trying to get up. El Salvador played well against Mexico. I was really impressed by that. But they'll seem to be in the quarterfinals. The team's nine through sixteen. We, we, we you shouldn't even have a competition. This was just. This is pretty brutal. Qatar. Sorry, it's not Qatar. I hear it saying Qatar. I just, I'm getting really fed up with the two ways to say this freaking country. And we've got to get it right because they're hosting the World Cup. That's going to be a good World Cup. But the Gold Cup, the U.S., I, I, I know there's a reason to criticize Greg Berhalter, but I try and stay away from that because he's, uh, he's kind of done everything he said he was going to do. He's given everyone a look. He has had a bunch of players have a sniff, old players, young players. It seems like he's a pretty equal footing type of guy. Uh, you can see he puts the work in with relationships. They like him. It's a comprehensive way. He has an ambitious style of play, which hasn't quite worked. Maybe we don't have the players yet. Maybe it's not a Berhalter thing. But he made some tactical things that weren't crazy. But I'm not going to refrain from doing that because he's hit his spots. He won the Nations League. He won the group in the Gold Cup. They look terrible against Canada, but they beat Canada, who looked good prior to that. It's just messy. I mean, there was like some things in that game that were really weird. Uh, the midfield getting overrun, where these Canadian guys would run for 40 yards. You're like, where? This big gap in the middle of the park. So it was a bit odd. Um, it was hard to watch Daryl DK and Gianluca Busio take the hits that they did because they were so good against Martinique. And yes, it's Martinique. And everyone told me to chill out, see how it plays out. Uh, but they were just cataclysmically bad. Busio was the worst player on the field. <laughs> he didn't, everything he did well before, he didn't. So there's no way you put him back in the starting 11. There's no way because he's 19. His confidence had to take a shot. Uh, I mean, he was getting run through all the time. And then Daryl DK just was up there on an island. And I, I know he was supposed to stay a little bit, but he was so inactive. And he was dispossessed so many times. And 50-50 balls always went the opponent's way. He was just not in it. I know he's better than that. And I'm not here to criticize these guys. But, you know, when those two guys in particular don't play well, you're like, ugh. You want to see the consistency and the moment and the, mon the the momentum, but you know that was bad. But there's some good things. James Sands, they threw him in the deep end of the pool, and the kid swam. And I think he's in there for the duration, and he's going to be on that 23-man World Cup qualifying squad because he's a valuable player because he can play a couple positions. But he's just really good. Matt Turner is rock solid. Jossie Zardes is going to keep you out of a pinch. He's going to be on a 23-man squad. Matthew Hoppy, I want to see a little bit more, but I think he's got the stuff as well. And Shaq Moore, eh, it was okay. The defense was good. The defense was good. And Walker Zimmerman, when he got injured, it went kind of south. So hopefully he can get back up there. I was always excited about having a rivalry with Canada because I can use Nickelback as ammunition if anyone gets out of line. The Canadian side with their trash talking. And I'll also add this, the USA, if they win their, they won their group and they have problems, if we have problems and Mexico is uh, on suicide watch, they are, they are, they got some problems. I mean, we, I, the weird thing is I think it'll be USA and Mexico at the end because the deeper rosters are going to find a way. But all these other teams have kind of performed Honduras and I'm recording this on a Sunday night, so we haven't seen the final group games, but Costa Rica, Qatar, I can't stop Qatar, Qatar. 
They've all kind of hit their spots, but it will be fun. They'll make the quarterfinals fun. We'll be all over it. We should be on the road trip for the final. We will give you a preview of that game coming up. This is the Soccer OG. Please subscribe, download, review it, leave a comment, share with your friends. We appreciate it. Big things are on the horizon, and I appreciate you. And on behalf of everyone who helps me do this show, Placido Domingo.